Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics. But the results of this survey also show us clearly that there's a great deal more work to do. The military sexual assault rate going up despite promises to root out misconduct. So why are the numbers getting worse and what's being done? We'll ask the Lieutenant General in charge of conduct and culture inside the Canadian Armed Forces. Plus, an outside expert on military culture tells us why she thinks there are barriers to change. And First Nations leaders get ready to elect a new AFN National Chief. A look at the front runners and what's at stake with columnist Nigan Sinclair. This is Primetime Politics. Hello, I'm Andrew Thompson in for Michael Serapio tonight. New numbers show a significant rise in sexual assaults inside Canada's military, even as military leaders try to root out misconduct. In 2022, about 3.5% of regular force members said they had been assaulted in the previous year. That's more than double the rate from earlier surveys. For women, the number is closer to 8% and even higher for non-heterosexual members. Personnel who are younger, Indigenous or have disabilities were also more likely to be victims. As well, nearly half of victims who did not report an assault say it's because they didn't think it would make a difference. Here's a response from the Defence Minister. We do understand our responsibility to create a respectful, inclusive and, and safe work environment for every member of the Canadian Armed Forces. I want them to, to, to be able to see and to participate in helping us bring about that cultural change. Some of it is re with, with regulation, some of it is with legislation, but a great deal of it is within how, how we recruit the people that we bring into the organization, how we support diverse voices, including women in the Canadian Armed Forces. All of those things are important elements of cultural change. I want to assure every member of the Canadian Armed Forces we remain if absolutely and resolutely committed to bringing about that, that change and creating that safe work environment for them. And, and for some, we, we will continue, have to continue to work to continue to build that confidence in, in the Canadian Armed Forces and in its culture. Well, joining me now is Lieutenant General Jenny Carignan, the Canadian Armed Forces Chief of Professional Conduct and Culture. General Carignan, good to see you. Thanks for having me. I do want to begin with uh, this number. We have this figure, 3.5% of regular force members saying they were sexually assaulted last year, either in a military workplace or in an incident involving a military member. It's a, the number when it comes to women is about 1 in 13. It's 1 in 9 non-heterosexual members. What's your response to seeing these numbers, which are actually getting worse compared to surveys that were done in 2016 and in 2018? We are, of course, very concerned uh, with uh, the statistics and the data that's coming to us via the survey. And this clearly illustrates the, uh, the urgency in continuing the work that we are currently doing in that space. So, uh, of course, uh, fully engaged in uh, continuing and improving our workplace within the CAF. Okay, now, uh, the Chief of the Defence Staff, General Wayne Eyre, said today, I'll give you that quote, the Canadian Armed Forces is committing to, uh, committed to eliminating all forms of misconduct, including sexual misconduct. Now, last month, you said that you were, quote, incredibly encouraged by the building momentum of our 
culture evolution efforts. Um, so I guess the question is, when Canadians see the kind of numbers that they're seeing today, um, why should they believe that change is actually happening? So the numbers that, uh, that we see today are um, absolutely key in informing the work we are doing. So uh, there's a lot of data in, uh, within the, the, the results of the survey that we need to uh, continue analyzing in more depth and as well balance with other research and surveys that we have also ongoing so that we have a clear uh, a better clear, uh, a clear view of what we are dealing with. Uh, so the increase in sexual assault and sexualized behavior um, is, uh, is, it can be both a good and a bad story at the same time. It's too early to really determine why at the moment. Um, but again, it's, it's a way for us to inform the work we are doing. We are seeing uh, some indicators within the survey as well uh, that seem uh, to provide us with um, some uh, positive trend within, uh, within our teams. So for example, uh, the majority of our members see a difference and see progress. Um, we also have a majority of our members who have a positive view of, of how their unit uh, is performing. And, then, and again, um, the level of awareness has also greatly improved since 2016. So um, um, we are absolutely engaged in, in pursuing the work that we are currently doing. Okay, just to go back to some of these, these numbers, and, and, and I'll, then I'll put a question to you, 66% of victims who reported an incident say they faced a negative consequence. That could be exclusion or bullying. It could be uh, an impact on their actual career in terms of reprisal. Nearly half of the victims who didn't report say that's because they didn't think it would make a difference. So what's your message today to those serving members who perhaps don't see any point in actually coming forward? Yes, the, uh, the dynamics behind reporting are very personal and also very, very complex. So uh, the, there are clearly barriers to reporting uh, sexual misconduct. And this is also what we know in the general population, uh, sexual misconduct, uh, assault and, and incidents are underreported. So, we know that there are barriers and we understand what they are because they are illustrated as part of the survey as well. Within the survey, we have also noticed uh, that um, me our members responded that regardless of policies and, and new mechanisms and the safety of the environment, they would still not be reporting incidents. So. It, it, Analyzing those dynamics better will, will help us understand. What we are currently doing to remove those barriers is using a tailored approach to victim, a victim-centric approach uh, to give victims more agency over their own complaint. Uh, so the repealing of duty to report, uh, the option of going directly to the Human Rights Commission or you can report to your chain of command or to the police. So there's many avenues that are very personal to each victim as to how they want to report incidents. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we did get that 
a status report from the external monitor looking at the military's effort at uh, culture change. And uh, she did say the top military leadership is focused on that change, but cautioned that even simple changes can take a long time to implement uh, inside an organization as large as, as the Canadian Armed Forces. Uh, she also says you do have a multi-year plan to track those changes and whether they're working or not. When will the public see more of that, uh, that more granular detail? So we have uh, this plan uh, in place currently, uh, and it's it's just a matter of, of um, having the opportunity to put in to putting it out there publicly. Uh, so it, it has gone through the levels of approving approval uh, required. Um, but again, this is one of the many things we are doing uh, to uh, to our efforts in culture. Um, those changes need to happen at uh, the team level. This is where culture is at play. Uh, so again, we have designed various uh, mechanisms and uh, like it's, it's a cross between education, training. Um, it also involves uh, how, how we treat complaints uh, and how we treat both victims and respondents as they go through a complaint process. So again, many, many different um, initiative and approach will get, get us to where we need to be. All right, we'll have to leave it there. Lieutenant General Jenny Carignan, thank you so much for your time on this. Thank you again. All right, well, let's now bring in Charlotte Duval-Antoine, a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute who has written extensively on military culture and gender integration. Charlotte, good to see you. The message we're hearing from the military and the Defense Department today is that we know there's urgent work to do to support victims of sexual assault. We know there's work to do when it comes to fixing the complaint process and uh, the data that's released today is going to help in that work. We just heard General Carignan point to the fact that more witnesses are intervening when they see something inappropriate. I want to get your reaction to what you saw in these new numbers today. I find those new numbers staggering when you have victims of sexual assault in the military double over the past five years. We find ourselves in a very serious situation. Uh, the numbers range from late 2022 to, to early 2023. So we find ourselves in a dire situation and there might be improvement in terms of responding to sexual assault incidents when people are witnessing them. Maybe people are more aware of what is a sexual assault and what is sexual misconduct. But more is happening and people who um, report um, this incident to, to the chain of command end up facing uh, negative repercussion. And, and that is a serious problem that we have on our end. Even though there are some room, tiny room for optimism, the situation is very dire. And we did hear General Karenia talk about this, uh, those numbers. She says work is continuing on a, on a victim-centric approach. But uh, as you say, uh, the numbers are clear. Two-thirds of members who reported uh, a sexual assault to someone in authority said they faced uh, a negative consequence, whether that is bullying or something that impacts their actual career in the military. So uh, what do you take away from those numbers in terms of uh, the military's effort uh, when it comes to actually being focused on victims? There's a long way to be done in terms of recognizing that the complaint process remains to be improved. 
but also how do we deal with responding to to victims when they come forward? It, it is something that has yet to be addressed. We've seen that in 2021, uh, there was an internal report within DND saying that there has not been real discussion about balancing uh innocent until proven guilty and the rights and the needs of the victim. And we still find ourselves in the situation. Uh, Two thirds of people signaling sexual assault, not just misconduct, assault, and getting mocked or bullied over this or facing negative repercussion in their career is far too many. And, and it kind of justify people who do not trust the chain of command and who do not trust coming forward will do something for them and will bring them justice. If we really, really want the things to change, we need to address that first. Because right now the military is facing a nutrition crisis and I do not see the situation really improving the matter. Well, and I was going to ask you about that as well. So let's turn to the issue of recruitment, because just recently we saw the commander of the Royal Canadian Navy on video talking about the challenges not just faced by the Navy, but also the Air Force and the Army when it comes to getting enough people into uniforms. So uh, when you see the promise of culture change coming up against the hard data uh, we're seeing today, what is the implication going to be when the military is trying to get more Canadians interested in a career in uniform? Well, it's difficult to see that those stories are really something that's going to attract people to join the military. But one thing that is really important to emphasize is the fact that the military will never be able to out-recruit the attrition problem that it has. So even though a lot of more effort needs to be done in terms of sharing a positive military story and, and a positive story of service, there is still the backstory that a lot of people are leaving the military in higher rates that people are entering. And we need to stop depleting and, and addressing those behaviors around sexual misconduct and sexual assault or any form of sexual violence is going to be critical if we want people to stay in the first place. There has been uh, a push for culture change and making the armed forces uh, a safer environment. Uh, that's what the government is saying and that it is pledging to implement all recommendations made last year by former Supreme Court Justice Louise Arbour. That really is uh, the bulk of the work being done. But when you see the data today, uh, do you think those plans need to be altered? The thing is that we need to be uh, fully aware that the situation goes beyond uh, what has been done since the Arbor report came out, um, because the numbers revolve around 2022 and, and the Arbor report came out in May of 2022. So so quite late in the period covered by the by the survey, we, we need to think more about the situation as a legacy of Operation Honor and, and the lack of implementation of the Deschamps report, then I would say accentuated by problems around uh, personnel shortages, uh, budget difficulties, and, and the pandemic. So, so we really need to see those problems as more holistic. When it comes to the plan, does it need to be changed? The problem is that the strategy that the military put forward was only finished in June of 2023. So 
right now, we don't really know what it's being done internally beyond the implementations of the Arbor recommendation. The implementation plan has not been made available either even to stakeholders, including myself. So, so it's very difficult to see where the military is at in terms of pushing forward. But one thing that I'm seeing is quite absent is really about changing the behavior of people when it comes to responding to sexual misconduct. There is no ties to the, to the fight against sexual misconduct with the personnel management system and the personnel evaluation system. And if you want people to change their behavior quickly while tying response to sexual misconduct, uh, whether it's about someone um, someone reporting their sexual assault, if we tie that to the evaluation, like did they handle sexual misconduct reports properly and did they bring towards the victim support? If that is a way towards promotion, towards higher evaluation, you would see a bigger buy-in. Right now, it is not tied together and that is one gap that the military needs to address right now. All right, Charlotte Duval-Lantoine, Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Thank you so much for your time on this. Thanks for having me. Voting for the National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations starts tomorrow. Six candidates are in the running and it comes at a tenuous time for the organization. The vote was triggered by the ousting of Roseanne Archibald in June after an external report concluded Archibald had harassed staff. Archibald has denied all wrongdoing. For more on the race, we've reached Nigon Sinclair. He's a columnist with the Winnipeg Free Press and professor of Indigenous Studies at the University of Manitoba. He's joining me from Niagara Falls, Ontario. Nigon, good to see you. Bonjour, Andrew. Nice to see you. So we have six candidates running for AFN National Chief. Who do you see as the front runners in that group? There's five candidates from the prairies, one from Ontario. Likely, it's although it's really hard, uh, you know, these are convention-like atmospheres. So for me to give you who is the front runner, I'd have to really tell you after the first ballot. Uh, but likely, Reginald Belrose from Saskatchewan, uh, two-decade chief, uh, well-known for working on gaming issues in Saskatchewan, also came second in the 2021 campaign against then-national chief Roseanne Archibald, uh, probably is the front runner, probably has the most amount of bedrock support. But there's two women who are very strong candidates as well. One is uh, Cindy Woodhouse, who is a a fairly strong loyalist to Perry Bellegarde, former national chief, but also really well known for the $23 billion settlement representing the AFN on the issue of uh, First Nations children in the child welfare system. And of course, something that everybody will be who has watched the AFN history of national elections will know, Sheila North, who in the 2018 election came second place, still has some bedrock support, is a former grand chief of northern Manitoba. I think those three candidates are probably the ones who are have the most bedrock amount of support. Certainly there's a lot of them. A dark horse candidate might be Dean Sayers, who's the chief of uh, former chief of Batchewana First Nation. Uh, he's well known for the $10 billion Robinson-Huron Treaty annuity settlement, uh, doing some really important stuff to bring chiefs together. And really that's the challenge for the national chief. How will you be able to bring a very fractitious organization together under a unified banner? Uh, the question is, can anybody do it? Right, because this election is coming after a lot of internal strife for the organization, including the removal of Roseanne Archibald as national chief. What has this done to the AFN's reputation in your view? 
Well, uh, Roseanne Archibald was the first female national chief in history. I think that's a terrible look. I think that uh, in a typically male-dominated organization, to remove the first female national chief and not let her finish her term is a terrible look for the organization. There was much allegations, and there was a report that suggested that Roseanne Archibald did harass staff, bully staff. But in the midst of all of that was she, her investigation and what she claimed to have evidence for, which was financial improprieties, uh, corruption in the organization dating back to the days of former National Chief Perry Bellegarde. Those answers have never been given. I mean, there's the questions are still lingering from those concerns that the former National Chief have raised. And so you know, the really, reality is, is can the uh, candidate, whoever becomes victorious for the National Chief, bring what is a very fractious group together? Because the organization has been able to do nothing for about two years now to be able to pursue and support First Nations interests across the country. But the real question is, should the AFN exist? It's been moving regionally for regional interests for quite a long time. Can any national chief bring forward the visions of chiefs in BC, for example, where treaties are being negotiated with very specific treaty rights that are being sought after in the Maritimes, for example, around lobster fishing? I don't think any national chief can perhaps do it. Maybe this is the best thing possible is for the AFN to break into regional groups, but we'll have uh, yet to see about that. So as you listen to the candidates this, uh, this week, put their message to that special chief's assembly, what are you going to be watching for in terms of the messages you're hearing from them on the future of the AFN and what it needs to be doing on policy issues? What are some of the, the key arguments that you think we might be hearing? Well, an AFN national chief election is nothing like anything else that this country ever sees. Oftentimes, the national chief's candidates, and they have been for the past month or so, been traveling really together, even sharing vehicles, uh, sharing uh, planes that they've been going on together. You just don't see that in Canadian politics. And so there's been a very interesting kind of camaraderie created from the six candidates. Anyone who sees social media, some of the debates, they aren't really debates. They're kind of presentations to chiefs groups saying, vote for me but, you know, I really have good relationships with this other candidate over here. You just don't see that. Um, I'm looking for how fractitious will this election get? Uh, one of the things that happens at these national chief elections is there's really specific chiefs rooms, like the BC chiefs, which is a very large contingent, the largest contingent of block voting. They often vote together. Who will be able to appeal to those BC interests or Saskatchewan, another very big block vote? Who will be able to achieve uh, those block votes? Because what you really need is BC, Saskatchewan, and let's say Manitoba or Ontario or part, part of the Maritimes, you really need uh, to appeal to specific regional interests to be able to gain support on the floor in the election. And we're also going to see virtual voting for the first time in the AFN national elections. Uh, we have seen some virtual voting in the past, but it's going to be on the wide scale. So how will virtual voting influence what's happening on the, on the national convention floor? Um, it will be about really who does the best speech on that day and who will be able to promise to make the AFN more relevant again with everyday First Nations and bring the chiefs back. For instance, in Alberta, chiefs don't even come to the organization anymore because it's been so fractitious. All right, very quickly, I do want to ask you about what happens next uh, when there is a new national chief, uh, what they're going to do in terms of policy, because we know that uh, chiefs who are at this special chiefs assembly are looking at policy resolutions along with voting. Homelessness uh, tops the list along with health care and languages. Um, what are the key areas that you see the AFN and the new AFN national chief really focusing on over the next six months, over the next year? 
Well, I agree with you on the issue of poverty and homelessness, but uh, you know the big issue that's been coming up in this election is the issue of housing. Uh, everybody's aware of the Kickstarter or the uh, sorry accelerator, not Kickstarter, that the federal government been invested in with municipalities. I think the AFN's been interested for quite a long time in supporting the issue of housing on First Nations and maybe accessing some of that dollars, or certainly reminding the federal government that they have an obligation to support housing. Another issue that's come up is around policing on First Nations. There's been a multi-billion dollar policy by the Trudeau government to support First Nations policing. The RCMP has clawed a lot of that money and not created individual First Nations with policing. The RCMP has, has taken a lot of that money. It's been quite controversial. I think the new national chief will want to deal with those issues as well. All right. Nigon Sinclair, thanks for your time on this tonight. Yeah, miigwech. Thanks so much, Andrew. And a reminder, CPAC has extensive live coverage of the AFN Special Chiefs Assembly, which continues through Thursday here in Ottawa. Go to cpac.ca for more. All right, time now for a look at the other stories making headlines today. MPs are considering a formal privilege motion on House Speaker Greg Fergus. Deputy Speaker Chris Dontremont is allowing the motion about Fergus's video tribute at an Ontario Liberal convention. The motion would refer the matter to committee. Fergus apologized in the House yesterday, calling the video a non-political message about a personal friend, MPP John Fraser. Canada's sport minister says to expect a formal, independent mechanism for examining allegations of sexual misconduct and abuse in Canadian sport. Carla Qualtro making the comments during a speech at a UN forum in Switzerland. This process will be trauma-informed, human rights-based and forward-looking. Additionally, I'll be announcing a series of immediate actions to address concerns raised by survivors and highlighted by our parliamentary committees, including next steps for the Abuse Free Sport Program and the Office of the Sport Integrity Commissioner. Athletes in different sports have accused the federal government of failing to address widespread reports of mistreatment, including physical, psychological and emotional abuse. And a parliamentary committee has recommended a national public inquiry. The federal government is launching a union-led advisory table on issues facing Canadian workers. Canadian Labour Congress President B. Brusque will chair the group of Labour leaders from across Canada. The table will offer recommendations on how to best support workers. I've heard from unions time and again that they want a seat at the table, they want a seat at the table, they want a seat at the table, we're the table where the decisions are made, where the big challenges are faced. And I've always said, Workers will have a lot more than a seat at the table. They will lead it. They will lead the table. Who else knows how to train electricians, carpenters, bricklayers? Who else knows how to properly tighten in the screws on a pipeline so the methane doesn't leak? Who else knows how to erect a wind turbine or a solar panel? Workers do. Only they do. So they'll lead it. Good answers. That group will present its findings to federal ministers later next year. And finally tonight, the Angus Reid Institute has its latest quarterly ranking of Canada's premiers. Quebec's Francois Legault is the least popular at 31% approval. That's a 16% decline over three months. New Brunswick's Blaine Higgs and Ontario's Doug Ford are slightly ahead. Meanwhile, Manitoba's Wab Canoe and Saskatchewan's Scott Moe top the list. They're at 57 and 54% respectively.
And that is Primetime Politics for Tuesday. I'm Andrew Thompson. Thanks for joining us and stay tuned. L'Essentiel avec Esther Bejan is next.